Okay, great. Um, so a couple of people had mentioned um, wanting to listen to the recording after, so we can uh, share the link afterwards. Um, so welcome everyone to our discussion of uh, Gilbert Simondon's individuation in the light of notions of form and information, uh, which we're starting today. Uh, can I explain a little bit how we've been doing it for um, some people that um, maybe this is their first time uh, joining? Um, I think it's the same way that some of the other reading groups have been proceeding, but we've just been reading uh, one paragraph at a time, going around uh, different people uh, reading uh, and then discussing each paragraph and um, uh, trying to unpack the meaning. Um, and feel free to put questions or comments or, or links or whatever in uh, in the chat um, if you if you have them. Um, and uh, also feel free to get on the mic. Uh, it might be a little bit more, uh, uh, because we have more people this time, we might need to be a little more structured in terms of um, the voice uh, discussion, but uh, we'll see how it goes to start with. Um, but yeah, so uh, we'll just read through it and comment as we go along. Um, and yes, the, um, the link to the PDF is in uh, the discussion chat. It's also in the other channel, the uh, ongoing discussion channel. I, I pinned it there um, in case you don't have it. Uh, 2.5 minute rule um, is that the, the length of your of someone's uh, intervention that you're only allowed to speak for two and a half minutes or uh, what is that? I'm just I was half joking, but I was saying like if we're if we're as a rule of thumb, maybe if people are going on for a while, we can just kind of say like try and keep it under a certain amount of time or something. Yeah, I think, um, I, don't, I don't know if we need a, a sort of firm um, limit, but uh, because we have more people try to, I guess, make your intervention brief so that everyone has a chance to speak. Um, and uh, I will try to do the same as well. But um, I'm also sort of leading this group because um, it's something that I've read before. Um, so I, I can try to help uh, guide, um, but I, I will try to uh, make sure that everyone has a chance to speak. Okay, so we're starting with the um, foreword by Jacques Garelli, um, which uh, is actually, it's in the French edition, but I had never read it before for whatever reason. So I uh, just read it today. Um, and uh, so we can go through it um, and, uh, and discuss some of the points it brings up. But uh, we should also keep in mind that um, some, uh, some of the ideas that are developed or, or alluded to in this uh, foreword are not... Um, not going to make a lot of sense until we actually get to the book itself. So we'll, we'll um, um, have to, um, in, in, in a few instances, we'll probably have to wait to um, have a, a full discussion of some concepts until we get to them in the book. Um, but that being said, um, I will start reading and uh, then we can go around the, the table and have um, a few other people read. Nan, before we begin, just to clarify, are we reading the foreword or are we starting with the introduction? Uh, the foreword by, by Jacques Garelli. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. So, uh, introduction to the problematic of Gilbert Simondon, the philosophical and scientific horizon of the method. If it has been noted that his, this work is paradoxically situated at the confluence of a meditation inspired by the Ionian physiologists on the notion of thesis, Anaximander's thought on the unlimited aperon, Plato's thought on the one and the indefinite dyad of the lung, Aristotelian and substantialistic, atomistic, hylomorphic principle of Leucippus and Democritus, 
And moreover, the most recent theories of thermodynamics, quantum physics, and information, it has rarely been emphasized that the individual and its physical biological genesis was dedicated in memory of Maurice Merleau-Ponty. This is an essential guiding thread, at least if the memory implies recognition and is therefore faithful in its recollection. Of what? Of the Merleau-Pontian thought of the pre-individual and its ties to individualizing formations, of its invitation to contemplate the pre-Socratic thought of the element, of its critique of Gestalt theory, of hylomorphic dualism, and symmetrically of the materialist atomism developed by, current, uh, by several currents of contemporary psychology, and lastly, of a radical critique of nothingness and the dialectic, in the sense that this notion and this procedure manifests a sort of reverse positivism of negation that steers philosophy away from the pre-individual dimension of the world. I mean, one thing I think we can say before we start digging into like, at least what he means by terms such as pre-individual or genesis or individual itself, I think one thing we can sort of say as a sort of biographical antidote was that uh, Simon Don, I'm pretty sure, was a student of Merleau-Ponty, if I remember correctly. So they did have a big influence on at least the way he understood his thought. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he um, he did work with uh, Merleau-Ponty. Um, and um, I should also mention, um, just as a um, uh, sort of orientation to this book, it has a, a bit of a strange publication history. So this was um, Simon Don's uh, habilitation thesis. And... Um, um, so the first part was published, um, uh, in 1960, I believe. Um, and, um, then the second part was published separately in 1989. Uh, and then it was only in 2005 that the, the whole thesis, um, uh, was published, uh, in French. And then now we're reading the translation of that whole thesis. So, um, in, in this paragraph, the reference is made to the individual and its physical biological genesis. So that's the um, the title under which the first part was published uh, in in the 60s. Um, and, and that's the one that was dedicated to Merleau-Ponty. Yeah, I have one question about the... Um, so these, in France, right, uh, the habilitation uh, uh, dissertation or something is what you do before you get your professorship or tenure is that how it works um yeah i'm not like a sort of an expert on the french system but my understanding is that um yes you so you you work um in um the lycée level like the the sort of um late high school level i guess um for a few years while you're preparing your your habilitation thesis and then once you once you've defended your habilitation um, you, have to, you have to do a, a major and a minor thesis, um, and uh, and so the, the this was the major thesis, um, and then the minor thesis was the the book on the mode of existence of technical objects, um, and uh, and then after you, you defend your habilitation thesis, you um, you are allowed to teach at the university level. Um, so if we look maybe to the uh, the meaning of this uh, passage now. Um, so um, the so that first long sentence is um, sort of a, um, alluding to each of the different um, uh, elements or, or components that that Simon Dong brings together um, in especially in the introduction to this book, um, and that that sort of are the guiding principles that he um, is working from. So he he. Um, the the Ionian physiologists um, 
and uh, Anaximander. Um, those those are more uh, dealt with in the um, the complementary text to this book, which is also in the translation, um, which is called History of the Notion of the Individual. Um, but in the actual book itself, there isn't too much discussion of that. But one, um, the next ones, Plato's Thought of the One and the Indefinite Diet of the Large and Small, um, this, this is something that is um, one of the reference points uh, in the introduction and the, the sort of general orientation of the book. Um, so um, this was, uh, th this is going to be re, um, I guess, re, uh, recaptured in the idea of differences of scale. Um, so in an individu individuation process, there's um, a linking between uh, the micro and macro scales uh, or different, uh, different scales of the system uh, are, are linked to each other through the process of individuation. Uh, and this is something we'll see more of when we get to the actual introduction of the book itself. Uh, but just to um, give you a, a, a taste of what's coming, I guess. Um, and then uh, the, the main targets of the criticism in the introduction uh, are the hylomorphic theory of, of Aristotle, so the, the form and matter ontology, um, and then the atomistic theory of Lucippus and Democritus, um, so the, the theory that... Um, holds that bodies are composites of atoms uh, in the void. Um, so those are the two theories that he, he criticizes as um, not having a proper account of individuation. And we'll see more of what his what his criticism is as we as we go on. I also think that last bit, the critique of nothingness and the dialectic, that that'll be, become important because it's like another not only for transduction as like a method um, that is supposed to go beyond like dialectics but just also if we think about everyone on the server being involved in different groups but this this concept of nothingness and negativity and lack is always coming up and this feels like yet another kind of way of, of attacking that and approaching it from like an endlessly kind of generative I think the a word that is used throughout is generative but anyway it's just something to keep in mind yeah I guess yeah, I, mean, I guess yeah. we... sorry was I interrupting? Uh, no, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just want to say, I think that sort of makes sense because uh, one way to look at the pre-individual then is, an, is a state of excess. Because if you look at the potentials, state of excess, that's one way where you can critique lack. Right. Um, I, I was just going to mention that um, the, yeah, there's a notion of transduction that we'll, we'll come across later on in this, um, in this forward um, uh, is is a sort of an alternative to dialectics um, in one one sense. Um, so Simon Don, um, um, he he his criticism of the dialectics or his his um, differentiation of of his own procedure from dialectics is that there's no moment of negation in in that procedure of transduction, um, uh, and so we'll see in more detail what that means exactly. But here. This allusion to uh, the critique of, of nothingness and the dialectic, I think, um, uh, so that he's he, Garali here is is saying that this is something that that Simon Don borrowed from Merleau-Ponty or uh, derived from him, um, and uh, I think I think that's referring to um, some uh, I think one of the later chapters in uh, Phenomenology of Perception that where he criticizes Sartre's. Um, uh, ontology of uh, being and, and the nothing um, and uh, um, 
yeah, so that's a, a sort of a general principle in Simondon or a general theme in Simondon is this um, um, criticism of uh, the concept of negation or of nothingness. And then maybe uh, just a, a last comment before we uh, move on to the next paragraph. Um, the so the the sort of philosophical um, uh, positions that he's criticizing, as I mentioned, are the Aristotelian hylomorphic position and the atomistic um, uh, position. Um, and then he's going to do that on the basis or using um, borrowing some concepts from physical sciences. So. Um, the, the concept of potential, um, which is borrowed from uh, thermodynamics. Um, there's going to be discussion of quantum physics um, in a later chapter that we'll get to at some point. Um, and then also the theory of information, which um, was relatively new at the time he was writing, but uh, was an important reference point for, for his work as well. Um, and um, and he, he uses these notions to um, to criticize some of the inadequacies of the philosophical positions. All right, uh, would someone else like to read the next paragraph? Um, it's a little bit distorted, but I think we can read it. I can go. Uh, furthermore, on the methodological plane, there is an attitude shared by Merleau-Ponty in phenomenology and the epistemology of microphysics, such as it is stated in Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, according to which we cannot radically separate the scientific object discovered at the end of research from the path of the thought and the operative processes that have led to revealing and constructing it. This attitude is developed with an extreme originality and a personal inflection due to the Simondonian conception of transduction and information that we will have to carefully examine. Moreover, it seems difficult to perceive the problematic of Gilbert Simondon, which among other things poses the question on the mode of existence of technical objects as a renewed form of physicalism. The dedication to Merleau-Ponty would therefore make such a positivist attitude of this style rather unexpected. Can anybody give us a, a brief background in the reference to Merleau-Ponty? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm far from a, an expert, but um, as far as I remember from my, my reading of, of Merleau-Ponty, there is, um, I think what he's referring to here is a, a criticism of um, uh, um, the criticism of a psychological orientation that takes um, that takes the uh, physical world as a as a given, um, and then uh, sort of adds uh, psychology on top of it in in some sense. Um, and for for Meloponsi, it's it's rather that um, that the um, the the human body um, as a, a a part of the world uh, so the human body um, is, is a, a perceiving body um, embedded in the world um, rather than um, uh, a sort of uh, Cartesian subject outside of the world and and looking at the world um, and uh, and so this this criticism of uh, sort of uh, physicalism uh, um, that uh, that Merleau-Ponty develops uh, here, Garali is um, is saying that that Simondon is sort of working on that basis and uh, is therefore not a, a physicalist. Yeah, the interesting thing is also that uh, there is this distinction in in Merleau-Ponty of um, the body as a felt body. I don't know if there's a, a distinct um, word for it in English. Um, it's not only a, only a physical body, but it's this. Um, lift body like like a form of uh, medium that, that is between subject and object 
So um, it, it's not merely um, sensual in a sense or intellectual um, or ideal. And on the other side, it is not merely uh, just just a deterministic uh, system of atoms, so to speak. It's the felt body that you are moving. And that's that's uh, part of your identity um, that you are feeling that you that you live in. Uh, and it's this um, body that is generating also uh, like in a Bergsonian sense, the 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 pictures that we um, are interacting with um, to to um, enable us to to um, have some notion of free will or to to have a choice in, in specific moments to have a perspective on things and to have a more distant um, outlook on the world and not be captured in the flow of of uh, causal relations but um, to to have some f uh, sort of agency and intentionality as well uh, there's a a sort of a, a lineage from from Bertrand to Merleau-Ponty to to Simondon, um, sort of a, a counter lineage, I guess, to the um, more straightforward phenomenological lineage. Um, but uh, there's definitely a lot of um, we'll see a lot of resonances with Bertrand as we go along through uh, through this book. I yeah, think, I think there's. Sorry, go ahead. Lou. I just want to say I think of the line from Bergson to Simondon is fairly direct. Like uh, Melo Ponti and Jean Hippolyte delve as like a, like mediators for this whole generation to Bergson, but um, from what I've read in secondary literature, um, Simondon is usually considered as one of the two big post-Bergsonians with Deleuze together. There was there someone else who had a, a comment as well? No, it's okay. We I was just gonna say that um, I think we'll we'll see more of this when we see the discussion of the Sunalan in Aristotle and sort of like Simon Simonin's critique of that. But you you do get a sense of I haven't met Marlo Ponte, but from listening to what you said, Triad, that there's this thing about which again feels like a connect back to Burson of like the 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 body and the the individuated the living being, I guess he calls it, is as like a site of virtual potentials. And that kind of allows it to traverse various traditions, I guess. But I think it'll make more sense when we get to that point. To, uh, to ask a question then, um, and maybe we'll get into this as we go, but because I see it's going to be developed. So um, maybe we don't have to answer this now, but it sounds like one of the questions being posed right now in the introduction is um, what is the relationship of uh, Merleau-Ponty and phenomenology with uh, Simone Dunn's project here? Yeah, that's definitely in this first part of the foreword, that's definitely um, uh, one of the, the sort of reference points. Um, and I, um, I mean, as I said, I'm not a, an expert in Merlin Ponty, um, but I, I tend to feel like um, maybe this forward overemphasizes that that um, relationship to some extent. Um, uh, so, I mean, there is this dedication to Merlin Ponty uh, of the book, um, but within the book itself, there's no um, direct reference to his work. Um, I, I'm pretty sure. 
um, and uh, um, I, yeah, and uh, the the connection with Bersan, um, uh probably um, probably inspired by Melvin Ponty or or um, generated by him, but um, uh, is also more more direct as uh, as Lou said. Um, so there's um, a more direct uh, reference reference to Bertrand than there is to Melville Ponty, um, and I think this thesis that uh, that Garelli makes here that um, that Simondon's work or, or Simondon's thought is not a physicalism uh, because of the the reference to Melville Ponty, I think is something uh, I, I would probably argue that it is a physicalism. Um, uh, but of a, a different kind than the one that Merleau-Ponty was criticizing. Uh, but uh, that's something we can um, probably think about as we continue to read the book uh, and we get to the introduction. Mm -hmm. And on the point, um, how does this relate to phenomenology? It's um, in the sense that um, in this method um, we are looking strictly to the phenomena that are given to us in, in a very descriptive and uh, bracketed sense, so to speak, when we um, look at it uh, through the uh, phenomenological uh, lens of Husserl, who is very um, oriented on theoretical knowledge and how we can ground our knowledge in a new transcendental way. Then later Heidegger um, is opening this, this method of a very accurate um, description of phenomena and how they are related, how they are given to us in a specific sense. Um, and it's very important not to uh, recur to, to specific concepts that are already um, established. So this is the this aspect of epoche, that you are trying to bracket out all the, the pre-assumptions uh, that are going together with a phenomenon. Uh, and Heidegger is opening this method more to the world and to aspects of um, a more uh, essentialist um, existential philosophy of uh, death, of time. Um, that's something that is uh, then very um, much influencing uh, authors like Sartre. Um, and, and later Merleau-Ponty um, takes a turn on, on both Husserl and Heidegger because he's uh, focusing way more on the body and the relation of, of um, uh, body, world, body, soul and subject and object just to overcome this this typical traditional dichotomy, something that is very present already in, in Heidegger but in, in Merleau-Ponty. Um, the, the body becomes uh, this, this intermediate thing between um, uh, our inner systematic workings, our uh, intensive um, structure, so to speak, and flows and uh, and the world. So we can just um, see this this more phenomenological approach uh, very much um, focusing on, on um, uh, for example, perception, but also on, on um, the aesthetic feelings of uh, touching something, hearing something, and uh, not trying to... to um, uh, push all these phenomena in a conceptual uh, pre-existing framework. I think it's hard not to undersell uh, Merleau-Ponty's contributions to the development of phenomenology because by like refocusing the the subject to the bodied subject, he was really kind of front-loading any number of 
spurious, possibly spurious kind of ontological distinctions into the phenomenological project. Anything that previously could have been inferred from kind of em embodied experience was kind of taken to be directly relevant to the perceptual uh, real, real, real world situation that, um, um, that cashed out the value for the phenomenological project. So it was kind of like, uh, I think, I think, um, I think a lot of people do kind of think of Merleau-Ponty as someone who is just this asterisk to, to phenomenological, um, um, distinctions, uh, sort of, so to speak, there was this, the kind of framing of scientific phenomenology and the kind of relation to epistemic and kind of previous philosophical notions that Husserl kind of took care of. And then from then, there's like different projects. Merleau-Ponty, he, he brought the body back into the picture. But I think in doing this, there's, it's really, it's really a lot more philosophically uh, um, uh, implicative than just kind of like coloring in phenomenology with like a proper context because we all happen to be in bodies or something like that. Like it's a lot more interesting and I encourage everyone to go and read more Merleau-Ponty. Right. Um, yeah, uh, it's something that uh, I've only read. I've only read the phenomenology of perception. I think uh, um, I don't think I've read anything else from from him, and uh, that was years ago. So that's something I should probably go back to at some point. Um, but I, I also wanted to uh, raise something that uh, Angus had posted in the chat about um, about physicalism, um, and um, so that this. Uh, sort of dictionary definition of, of physicalism um, as the, the thesis that everything is physical. Um, so it is, uh, in a sense, opposed the picture of uh, subjectivity as, as standing outside of the world. Um, but so Merleau-Ponty um, criticizes uh, the both at the same time um, as being sort of the mirror images of each other. Um, so the, uh, an intellectualist psychology that that um, that like a like like Descartes psychology that that focuses on um, uh, innate ideas um, as um, sort of the the structuring principles of the mind, um, and then a, a, um, a straightforward empiricist psychology. Um, they they're they're sort of mirror images of each other in that they they um, each presuppose what the other one um, uh, is is starting from. So each of them sort of lacks what the other uh, starts from. And uh, and so they're, they're both inadequate for that reason. Um, and so um, uh, the, the, the physicalism position or the physicalist position that um, Garelli here takes Simondon uh, following Merleau-Ponty to be criticizing is um, is one that that starts from the object, the world as a as something objective, um, and uh, and takes the subjective to be something outside of it or or independent from it in some way, um, and uh, and then um, uh, so the the criticism of physicalism would be or the the counter to physicalism would be a position that um, um, Take subject and object to be um, relative terms in some sense, or or to have uh, the subject arise out of the object, or something like that. Um, we'll see some different ways of trying to understand that as we go, get into the introduction. Would you say also that this could be connected to his 
sort of thing about elevating the the relation to the status of being like I, and i don't want to go too far ahead here but i'm just thinking of if we think about like locating you know the, the importance of the body and like the sunalan type thing uh the, maybe the physical maybe the idea of physicalism that we're talking about here isn't just a kind of base materialism which could be a lot of different things but it's physicalism in the sense of the, the relations that are unfolding in these metastable systems, the problematics that you know that are being resolved through transduction and all that, they're not these aren't just like abstract terms that are being related conceptually, but are are they have they have a, a physical is the wrong word, but insofar as there are individuals, individuated beings and things, they they exist and they actually resolve themselves and create further systems and you know reticular i think is the word he uses like they re- create reticular kind of systems so maybe maybe that's what where he's getting at with the idea of it. it's it's not physicalism in the traditional sense but it's uh, there's a locate there's a spatio-temporal kind of like location to what's happening it isn't just unfolding in empty time like he critiques later the, the hegelian dialectic it's not just randomly happening in different stages or something I would just jump in and that, say that that reminds me a little bit of uh, like Merleau-Ponty's late, late, late work, uh, where he talks about the chiasm, right? Where he talks about a kind of inter, a kind of intertwining between subject and object, and really there's a kind of a sort of like in his in his some of the last things that he wrote, there's a kind of dissolution between between bodies and world that sort of starts from this this sort of flesh fleshed ontology, or I think is what he calls it, and then but then he's really sort of starting to question the boundaries of it. I'm wondering if Simon Doe's conceptualization of physicalism is somehow somehow is responding to that is responding to his very late work yeah for those who read ahead there's a there's a discussion of a, the chiasm uh or the or there's use of it at least it does not um sort of well um uh uh expounded i don't think but um uh it sounds i think Based on the publication history, um, Simondon probably would not have been uh, able, would not have had access to the the visible and the invisible um, when he was writing this book. But um, as as Garali is going to point out uh, a little bit later, um, just through you know conversation and uh, attending his courses and so on, uh, Simondon would probably have had at least some uh, awareness of what Melville was doing in. Uh, uh, in this time period, or, or um, what his work, what he was working on. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's um, uh, probably not a direct line from the the visible and invisible, um, but um, some uh, awareness of that same um, uh, thematic, I guess. So we um. In the interest of time, should we keep reading, maybe? And if so, I, I don't mind reading. I was going to propose maybe reading the next two paragraphs to just kind of finish this initial section. Uh, sure, that sounds good. If I, I don't, I hope I'm not cutting anyone off. I'm just thinking about time. Um, yeah, I'll just go ahead. So um, on the contrary, what Gilbert Simondon invites us to contemplate and remodel according to a radically new perspective is the strange relation between the pre-Socratic thought of the unlimited and of the element on the one hand, and that of the Merleau-Pontian style of pre-individual being in its process of individuation, which are linked. And this is the very paradox and barely understood originality of Gilbert Gilbert Simondon, 
to the thermodynamic conception of metastable systems that are irreducible to the order of identity, unity, and alterity. Such are the stakes of this work whose force of invention prohibits any attempt seeking to isolate it in a current of thought or that would form a school. If phenomenology can glean something of interest from this meditation, it would be through the questions posed to it, through the course, pathways, bifurcations, and modes of problematization that Simonda's meditation deploys on the horizon of the very questions inherent to the phenomenological enterprise. Furthermore, it is on behalf of the central question of the pre-individual in its process of individuations that we are attempting to grasp the legitimacy of the notions of metastable system, potential, and energetic tensions of transductivity, transductivity and information in a thought of the pre-individuality of being. So that seems to be the author's move here then, right? Is this, this expounding on the paradox of um, like a Merleau-Pontian engagement with, um, with the pre-individual through consciousness, right? And thereby things like the body and being, but instead to, um, to go at it in a different route uh, which he's comparing with physicalism here, right? That seems to be like the, the paradoxical move that he's locating in Simondon. Yeah, I think I think that's why, for me, I was um, a little bit skeptical of this this claim that Simondon is, is not doing physicalism or is not a physicalist, um, um, because uh, I do think that um, what what we what we find in Simondon is um, precisely a, an account of where this um, uh, uh, where this pre-individual um, element um, acts within the physical. So um, it uh, you, you could call it a, a non-physicalism in the sense that it's not um, uh, it's not based in uh, an account of of bodies, um, but it's. Uh, uh, it's still um, physical in the sense that um, that um, the the potentials and and forces and and so on that he's talking about are are real you know physical uh, force, forces. Um, so there there these processes of individuation are, are not happening in uh, in the void. They're happening in uh, real the, the real world. Uh, so I think I think they are physical in that sense. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're spot on there because even the, even the author here seems to kind of be wondering about that, right? Like, Simone Dunn seems to be, uh, paradoxically, uh, a physicalist, or to say it differently, right? Like, the the, the positive attitude of his move here is, it's un, unexpected, right? It seems like um, he's trying to do something that, otherwise, you would just go your way and we go our way, right? The, the criticism would kind of, um, it'd be kind of like a bygones thing, right? You go your way, I go my way. It looks like the, the theme here is that Simone Dunn's able to take things that seem irresolvable, especially through their critical engagement with one another, and he's able to help them kind of, um, he's able to create things out of that that actually have a way of working together as opposed to just like splitting off. Yeah, I think um, if if I'm understanding correctly, um, he uh, um, like an example of what you're talking about is the way that he criticizes. Um, he criticizes the hylomorphic 
um, schema, uh, the, the form and matter uh, schema, um, but he does so in a way that um, shows, it, uh, sort of relativizes it, that shows um, why it might seem to be true uh, in a limited case, but why it's uh, insufficient um, um, to, to describe individuation as a whole. Um, and we'll see a little bit more of that in the next section of this uh, foreword, um, and then again in the introduction. Shall we read Shall on? We read? Uh, yeah, so we can continue. Uh, someone else would like to read the uh, the next paragraph. I can read. Uh, is that um, on the contrary? Uh, no, we're at um, uh, below that. Uh, so at the the title, um, revaluation of uh, classical concepts and modes of thought from from there. Okay. Um, in a note from February 1960, Merleau-Ponty writes, but what is fine is the idea of talking literally the Erwerken of thought. It is really empty. It is of the invisible. All the positivist bric-a-brac of concepts, judgments, relations is eliminated and the mind wells up as a water in the fissure of being. We must not look for spiritual things there. Our only structures of the void. But I simply wish to plant this void in the visible being, show that this is its reverse side, in particular the reverse side of language. Gilbert Simondon's critique of the principle of individuation, whose corollaries are those of form, matter, substance, and fixed and stable autonomous terms posited as realities in themselves that form the structure of the world, relations, and inductive and deductive judgments proceeds in the same critical style as the one recommended by Merleau-Ponty. In fact, this mutual appeal of Merleau-Ponty and Gilbert Simondon to the radical recasting of philosophical concepts will be articulated through the conscious apprehension of a tightly conjoined movement of being and of thought, a movement excuse me, which generates the complex processes of individuation of individuations that arise from a trans-individual dimension of being. The striking simplicity of, of Gilbert Simondon's demonstration from the very first lines of his doctoral thesis should not make us forget all the pre preparatory work that stems from a profound meditation on the Ionian physiologists, as well as the thought of Plato and Aristotle. Thus, the conclusion of a long historical meditation, followed up by years of teaching and reflection, is what leads to the introduction of the present work. What is the crux of the argument? Um, yeah, so thanks, thanks for that. Um, yeah, and we, um, Ali was just suggested in the chat there that maybe we can read a couple of paragraphs at a time um, as we go through, um, and that, that seems fine to me um, if, uh, if it's okay with everyone else. Um, and then we also had a, a question from Angus about um, the, the term Erwirken, um, 
Uh, we have a couple of uh, Germans here in the in the chat in the discussion, so maybe one of you could uh, uh, explain that word for us. So it it can mean different things. Um, so averten um, means in, at uh, one point something like obtaining or effecting, so bringing forth something. Um, or um, even taking out something to to or to obtain uh, a judgment in this sense. Um, so averting means um, affecting in in that sense that something is bringing another thing forth or some um, or some new aspect. Right. Thanks. Um, and I think I think here this in in that Merleau Ponty passage that that's cited there. I think it's a reference to Husserl, um, possibly. I'm not sure, um, but um, that would be something that uh, someone could look up uh, if they're interested in in following up that um, that reference. Just to note as well that footnote four um, answers the question earlier about the invisible and the visible and the invisible, and it was kind of I think to try what Triad was saying. Uh, even though it seemed, I think in the footnote he says, even though it seems to indicate that Simondon had not read the above, um, we should take care to note that he was clearly aware of the spirit of reform, radical reform, of philosophical principles developed by Mary Ponty in his courses and conversations that he could um, only confirm his own personal undertaking. Uh, there's there's a bit more there, but I think he's implying, I don't know if there's evidence, but he's implying that maybe Simonin was aware of these concepts, even if he hadn't read the text. Right. Our, um, I haven't looked ahead. Are the are the notes uh, at the end of each section or are, are they at the end of the whole book? At the end of the book. Okay, so we haven't uh, gotten those scanned yet. So, um, um, yeah, we can, uh, for those who have the um, the book, they can um, help us out with the notes whenever there's something useful to um, uh, to bring up. Um, I, I like it better the way they have it in the French edition here, um, just at the bottom of the page, so you don't have to hunt for the notes at the end of the book. Um, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> we can just read those in whenever there's something uh, useful. I have a physical copy of the book now, so I can scan the endnotes and uh, and stick them up with the with the scan. Um, I I pinned a message by Varun. He posted the the whole um, oh. PDF of the book and Terrific. the the all the including material of the second volume as well as in it. Okay, great. Yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't see that. So thank you. There's also, I don't know if we need to read it out loud necessarily, but the footnote five also goes into the text titled History of the Notion of uh, the Individual, I guess, in French, that was what he's referring to here when he says the, the profound meditation on the Ionian physiologists. Um, I can try and copy paste that into chat if I can find the thing. Yeah, so that's that's another text that's um, added as a, a complement to uh, to the the French edition, um, and then included in the translation as well in the in the second volume. 
Um, uh, so it's it's a history, basically a history of it's the entire history of philosophy read through the the lens of the notion of uh, the individual, um, and uh, um, uh, so that that was written uh, at the same time or or in the same period as this individuation book, um, and so sort of forms a background to it. So if I understand this passage correctly, Merleau-Ponty is getting at. Um, Sorry, whereas the these concepts like judgment, relations, and uh, and concepts itself, these appear to be of the empty or the invisible, right? But Merleau-Ponty seems to be saying that um, the void here, where those uh, where structures like concepts seem to arise from, it's not in the invisible; it's actually part of the visible being. And um, on the flip side of that, yeah. I'm not 100% sure about the reading of that, um, of the, the Merleau-Ponty passage. Um, I don't know if someone who, who knows Merleau-Ponty better than, than me might be able to comment on that. But um, to my understanding, he's, he's um, sort of rejecting the, the, the notions of, of concepts, judgments, uh, and relations as, as something uh, positivist to be criticized. And he's instead um, Posing that um, um, the what he calls the structures of the void um, are something that arise within being uh, within the visible, um, and uh, I guess that would and that, and that would be something like the the chiasm or chiasmus um, that uh, is sort of the the interlacing of the 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 um, subject and object. Yeah, maybe someone who's more familiar with Merleau-Ponty can expand. Uh, I'm reading it as this is another kind of instance of the the void, what we think of as the void, kind of like what you were saying, what L.A. Mason was saying before. It's not, there's not an actual, like he's saying it's the reverse side of something else. So to what extent, Simonin brings this up in the introduction where he's like, there is a kind of negativity that happens in these, like in transduction and in ontogenesis, but it's so distinct from a substantial negativity, like the way we would traditionally think of it, that it's, is it really, is it negativity anymore? It's like an imminent force at that point. Mm. So it's interesting. I don't know Marleau-Ponty as, as much, but it strikes yeah. me like it's, if you say that the void is the reverse side of something else, uh, rather than its opposite, it strikes me like you're giving it the status of, of, of being there. And then there's, you know, there's all this stuff about entropy and neg entropy, stuff that goes way over my head. But that seems like where it might be going. Mm. Yeah, it, it sounds like a bit of uh, a critique on this, um, also this this dualism between um, mind and body, for example, because he's um, very critical in this um, passage of um, this this einwirken of thought. So the forcing of of thought or the mind on the body, for example, that brings something forth, like uh, concepts or is judging um, and and is. Um, moving the body so to speak so uh, for him it's way more interconnected as i understand him and we just don't look anymore on these um, empty concepts like in the way of uh, Schelling, who is critiquing hegel for his negative philosophy that is just concerned with with specific concepts he wants to bind this to a more positive sign side to to the um to the genesis of these concepts and uh, of of uh, what we are even referring to when we are using this 
not only by uh, definitions, but looking uh, to the processes, how the, uh, the, these things like concepts of uh, and thought and intelligence even uh, are generated through material processes and in this um, trans, transductive and pre-individual way. So we don't have this uh, um, notion of some some kind of dualism that we put all these conceptions on top of um, every uh, physicalist explanation, but that we find a uh, new framework, new explanations that are able to to describe all the phenomena that are also material, uh, mental, and uh, no matter of what, uh, of what modality, I would say. I think that's a, a really good interpretation of this because I think that's the move I'm seeing too is that instead of taking concepts and judgment to kind of come out of the void where we can't see any, any uh, right where there's an invisibility, if we locate the void with being as the flip side, and here he seems to be suggesting that flip side of being is language, or rather being here is almost... Uh, being here seems to actually even be identified with language here. But in doing so, right, uh, concepts, judgments, and what is coming out of the void in that sense is happening visibly in relation to being, as opposed to, like you're saying, like in a diametrical um, contrast with being. Yeah, and uh, one one point on on this notion of uh, this criticism of concepts, um, we'll see a little bit um, further on in this foreword that uh, Simondon also has a, a criticism of uh, conceptual thinking um, as uh, concepts being um, being sort of relative to the already constituted individual. Uh, and then um, a non-conceptual form of thinking, uh, which he calls transductive thinking, uh, is what is required in order to think individuation. Um, and we, for those who were there in the uh, reading on, on the mode of existence of technical objects in the conclusion of that book, um, he, he identifies this form of thinking with intuition, which is a, another uh, Bergsonian term. Um, so, uh, Intuition or uh, transductive thinking is what is required to um, to have um, an un a grasp of uh, trans of uh, individuation. I don't mind reading the next part. Yeah, I was just going to say we can go go on to the next. Um, so let's see how long the um, yeah maybe you just read a, a page or so. Uh, yeah, from the first proposition, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The first proposition is an ontological characteristic in the sense in which it takes for granted that the individual is the essential reality to be explained. This conviction comes from the primacy according to, according to Aristotle to the individual. Uh, I'm not going to try it for the Greek. Regarding the question of being qua being, as Simon Don asks, why should being in its totality end up integrally in a multiplicity of individuals to be known? Why would the being as such not include a pre-individual dimension? Correlatively, why would the individual, such as it appears, not conserve a dimension of pre-individuality in its dimension of being, which would be somewhat associated and irreducible to what can be thought in terms of the individual? This is a dimension that would never cease to intervene in the formation and evolution of the individual, which afterwards 
takes on a twofold relative value. With respect to the pre-individual being from which it proceeds without eliminating, and with respect to itself insofar as that the individual conserves an associated pre-individual dimension that never stops modeling its future individualizations, if this were the case, the whole quest for the principle of individuation and the very idea of the principle would be reformed. Um, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I think I'll just stop there because it's sort of like a bit dense. But uh, what he's saying here, at least, it becomes a little bit clearer, in my opinion, in the introduction, right? That, well, what do these models do? These, uh, so far, at least the hylomorphic schema or the substantialist schema, what they do is, well, there's two problems in this, that they start with a sort of, well, we need to explain the individual and then work backwards. So what they do to find this individuation is they start from like, uh, for example, the hylomorphic schema will start from a fully constituted individual and then it'll work backwards, whereby it presupposes a teleology. And in the other case, it also presupposes that there's something before individuation itself, that there's a pro that, that, that before the process, there is something. And I think the heart of Simon Dunn's critique is to get back, is to basically tackle with those two ideas that these theories presuppose. One, that there's a strict teleology, and uh, two, that there is something before the process. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on about that. And if we expand on that point too, right, that has a lot of implications for how we're conceiving being, right? Where he writes, um, as Simone Dunn asks, why should being in its totality end up integrally in a multiplicity of individualities to be known? Right, so at this point, like if we if we place everything under the locus of individual, uh, indi individuality, right, then that means being at this point has no, um, this is, I guess, expounding on that Merleau-Ponty quote, right? It has no sort of creation or um, afterwards, right? It's all about the individualities and not about um, kind of what they can do or how they've done what they've done, if they've done anything, right? Yeah, and you see the whole critique of teleology also in the whole notion of a, of a pre-individual state, because, well, what is a pre-individual state? It's sort of, it's a metastable, so it's filled with these potentials and not end goals, really. I don't know how yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. that. Oh, sorry. Um, I was just going to mention... Um, uh, a, a point of translation that um, I think we'll probably come across uh, throughout the book, uh, especially in the introduction, um, is the word being. Um, and this is always um, a little bit difficult to translate um, uh, across languages. Um, so in this case, um, the the question is whether you want to translate, so in French it's l'être, um, and the question is whether you want to translate as as being uh, or the being, um, either one is defendable, but you have to sort of know from the context which one makes the most sense. Um, so there are some cases where um, where it'll be translated as being and other places where it'll be translated as the being. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I'm interested to see as we go along which one gets, gets picked where. Um, and so there may be um, occasions as we go along where I'll, I'll sort of point out, um, uh, you know, uh, an alternate translation. I think that to be is to be a bound variable, right? Isn't that, don't we all agree on that? 
Right, that's the the quine uh, definition, right? Yeah, I'm just joking around. <laughs> It's interesting though, yeah, no, the, I've always been curious about the, the way that being is translated. And I can spend hours sometimes just kind of going in, into etym etymological distinctions, trying to figure out like what, there, I mean, I've, there's even like the problem of um, the meaning of like cross, cross language meaning, where like um, there could be like a certain, um, meaning derived from two different independent meanings in two different language sets, you know? Um, I don't know, I'm always really confused by issues of translation, basically. Um, yeah, so I think we can go on to the next couple of paragraphs. So we're still, um, we're still going through um, the, the first presupposition uh, and then we'll get to the second one in a couple of paragraphs. Um, um, on the next page, I believe. So maybe you can read up up until the the line, uh, the second presupposition. If someone else would like to read uh, the next bit. Uh, I can read. Indeed, we should recall that Duns Scotus writes his treatise on the principle of individuation concerning a theological problem, that of the distinction between angels and persons. This work involves a problematic that develops within the framework of a metaphysical discussion that is subordinated to Aristotelian logic and guided by hylomorphic dualism and the theory of four causes. Thus, starting from question one of Ordinatio to distinction three, part one, which is entitled, whether material substance is, individu is individual or singular of itself, i.e. from its nature, Duns Scotus expresses himself in the following terms. As to the third distinction, one must ask about the distinction of persons in angels. But to get a view of this distinction in angels, one must first inquire about the distinction of individuals and material substances. And just as different people speak differently about these distinctions, so they speak in different ways about the plurality of individuals in the same species of angels. However, the second question manifests the substantialist, substantialistic origin of the discussion and the objection that Aristotle addresses to Plato. It is stated in these terms. For the affirmative, in Book 7 of the Metaphysics, philosophy established against Plato that the substance of each thing belongs to that of which it is substance and does not belong to anything else. The logical and metaphysical processes of the discussion, along with the thought of substance, which is never called into question, need to be critiqued for the problem of individuation to be posed. Yeah, there's um, a point here before we get into sort of the, the meaning of this passage, there's one point where I think I think there's a, um, a mistake of translation, um, but I would um, want to defer to someone who knows um, scholastic philosophy a lot better than I do, but um, where, where in the translation it says, uh, the distinction between angels and persons, um, I think I think it should be the distinction um, of angels into persons, um, because I think if I remember correctly, the the problem that Dunscotus is um, is dealing with is um, so given that angels um, are are 
consist solely of form. They, they don't have a, um, um, a matter. Um, what is it that individuates one angel from another or, or that distinguishes one angel from another? So how is it that one angel uh, is, a, is a distinct person from another angel uh, if there's no matter to, um, to individuate them? Um, and and so I think I think that's it should be yeah distinction between or sorry the distinction of angels into persons. Now, this is that famous uh, <clears throat> how many how many angels can you fit on the head of the pen? Because if materiality um, is important for understanding um, the individuation of angels, then that seems to be very relevant. Like. Um, they're like, where do we draw the line? You know, can we fit millions of angels on in the size of like one tiny pin? Um, and th this is this isn't um, a Scot Scotus's thing, but it's just one of those many scholastic uh, strange things. I think there is a strange assumption at this time that there was like a <clears throat> like an unindividuated angelic substrate, right? which I find very weird. And like, I don't think that would be a prevailing notion today possibly, because we always, uh, we kind of think of angels as these um, already having some discrete bodies, you know, despite their possible immateriality, which I think most people would probably ordinarily consider angels to be immaterial as well. But this, this kind of like intermediate stage between the divine and the human I think is really what is alluded in, to in in this character in these characterizations and these his kind of somewhat historical and theological debates. Yeah, I think the just looking at that first point from Don Scotus, right? He's raising the question of um, if there is the substance. Right? How is it possible that many people are talking about many different substances or have many different takes on the substance, right? Shouldn't there kind of be a, um, a consistency there, especially if you have a substantiality, right? So how are you getting difference um, of substance? And then the second one seems to be, um, so philosophy established against Plato that the substance of each thing belongs to that of which it is sub that of which it is its substance and does not belong to anything else right so substance here would be in the thing and shouldn't be coming from anything else right it should kind of be like um sort of in, uh, inherent there so the the two premises that seem to be being called into question are why is substance not consistent and um, does substance actually abide in the thing as opposed to coming from something, right? Can it have, does it have an origin or is there a process from which it can um, result? Yeah, and I think this is connected to the whole critique of even at one point he says, you know, this is like how you, you can't reconstruct the world from monads, like whether you go by the substantialist or the hylomorphic approach, kind of like Varun said, there's, you're always starting, you know, this paragraph set at the beginning, why, why start with the individual, what is, how do they phrase it? The, that the individual is the essential reality to be explained. 
and then using other individuals to, to explain that individual reality. It's kind of recursive and goes on forever. So I think what's interesting from, you know, I've only read as far as the introduction, but it, he kind of is trying to do away with form and substance, you know, form and matter and substance and come up with an entirely different schema because there, there's always a problem trying to use, like like Vern said, I guess, just starting from this a posteriori and going backwards. But he, he comes up with other concept there of the a presenti which i think is really interesting but um yeah just i don't i don't think i have a coherent point there just i think more of it will come yeah i i've never been able to really get down to the bottom of the problem of substance and substantiality i'm always more comfortable with the essences and accidents of aristotelian designations but when it comes to sub substance i always ponder it for a while and then I delegate it to a constitutional problem of like very holistic uh, character rather than one in which there's like a direct attribution which would be subject to a vicious circular critique I guess. Yeah I think the constitution like the whole constitution thing is the right way to frame it because uh, I mean we're talking about something where being is given by itself and its own unity is given in that in its own formation really. So, um, I mean, the paradox that uh, Simon Don is uh, aware of is that, well, if if substantialism is this thing where we just have, well, we have this uh, being that sort of itself given its unity and it's uh, self-constitutive of itself, um, for some reason, even, and, and, and despite it being a monism, for some reason, it shares a lot of similarities with uh, a hylomorphic thought as well in that well matter and form what well, we can't explain sort of that so we can also kind of treat them as substances in a weird way yeah there, there's a quote from page four where he says uh, something along the lines of the, the idea that becoming is different than being is only possible within a doctrine that supposes that the model of being is substance hmm. and i think that kind of forms a lot of the like guiding principle for this of like you, you're always falling into different ways of thinking about stabilities, things at rest, and then how is it that they become other things? So then you have to explain becoming and being as though they're these two separate things where he's, you know, he wants to talk about becoming as a dimension of being itself. And therefore it doesn't need, it's not a, a, a you know, form and matter hylomorphic thing where something needs to be applied to something else in order for change to happen. And it's also not a series of discrete you know, individual entities that are randomly collected and and somehow magically are moved into another state, which actually reminds me a lot of Bergson's critique of, you know, uh, immobility and immobile ways of thinking, uh, and of and of you know spatialized time and stuff. So there's there's a I guess again we're we are kind of jumping ahead, but there, this is I think this is the, the, the becoming becoming always draws on the pre-individual. And so the pre-individual state never goes away, even when individuation happens. So that's why he, and I think in the intro, he does a really good job of explaining why this insight from thermodynamics and metastable systems is so useful for this, this methodology. Because once you get away from the need to talk about things at rest, and you're allowed to conceive of tensions resolving themselves as, as actually inherent to the metastable state and that it's necessary for problematics to be resolved, then you stop kind of caring about whether, you know, it's all part of the same process, I guess, is 
to put it crudely. Um, and I think maybe one one last point before we move on to the next um, the next paragraph and the second presupposition is that uh, in that last power, short paragraph after the the, the quote, um, uh, so Gavali notes here that um, um, the metaphysical and logical processes of the discussion have to be uh, critiqued at the same time um, as soon as you, you pose the, the problem of individuation. And, and so this is an important point of, uh, of method for Simon Don, because um, when he talks about transduction, this is uh, uh, an ontological and uh, a logical um, process at the same time. So transduction is a, a real process that is occurring in the world, but it's also uh, through transduction that we can grasp uh, the, the process of individuation. Um, so it's a, it's a mode of thinking and a, a mode of existence at the same time. Um, so I think um, maybe I can read the next one. Um, uh, so I'll read the, this one is a, a long paragraph. Um, so I think I'll, I'll just read the one paragraph and then we'll stop there and, and discuss. Uh, the second unquestioned presupposition is that individuation has a principle that would be anterior to it and would allow for the formation of the singular individual to be explained. The fact that this three-dimensional hierarchical structure, the individual, individuation, principle of individuation, is polarized by an unquestioned ontological privilege granted to the individual, which constitutes the ultimate finality of research, is aggravated by the fact that the quest for the principle of individuation as such derives from, from a paralogism that crystallizes into the twofold nature bestowed upon the principle. In this sense, two historical attitudes pursue this false path. The first, which is substantialist, atomist, and monist, discovers the atom in the atom of Lucifus and Democritus, the absolute elementary principle that allows for an explanation of the formation of the individual and of the individuated universe. The theory of the Kleinemann and Epicurus explains the fortuitous formation of more complex individuated structures based on the unitary atom. Despite the caveats of Bohr and Heisenberg, modern atomistic materialisms that continue to conceive of quantum particles as infinitesimal first substances with an autonomous reality qua formation of matter follow the path of this same illusion. The paralogism consists in conferring upon the already individuated atom the status of a principle that is supposed to explain the very formation of the individual as such. In other words, in a contradictory way, the individual is elevated to an object of research while also being taken as a principle of its own explanation. But the dualistic hylomorphic attitude of, Aristotelians, of the Aristotelian style hardly escapes from the same contradiction, since the form and the matter, insofar as they are conditions and principles of the formation of the Sunolan, are in fact treated as unitary terms, already individuated causes. However, it is not enough to explain that it is exclusively by abstraction and a posteriori that these principles can be extracted from the single concrete reality that the Sunolan is. For, on the one hand, they are elevated to supreme and therefore principal and primary metaphysical causes. But on the other hand, Gilbert Simondon's novelty is to demonstrate through concrete examples borrowed from the formation of natural individualities, such as islands in a river, sand dunes under the pressure of the wind, ravines hollowed out by water streams and the formation of crystals, but also through technological examples like the fabrication of a brick or the cutting of a tree trunk, that the formation of a natural or technical individual never ends up in the application of a form to a matter. The hylomorphic schema certainly leaves out the energetic conditions of form taking, which reside in the already deposited energetic conditions in the structure of matter. 
that uh, natural con that natural conditions due to chance or manpower can unleash, orient, and channel in the formation of an individual. Conversely, at the end of the half chain of form taking, there is no structuring form that does not depend on a certain material structure of the form that allows for the potential energy included in the form to structure matter. This is an extremely complex problem that renders the hylomorphic principle of individuation obsolete. However, on the plane of artistic creation, i.e. the formation of material individualities which, through the assemblage of their structure, provoke thought, it can be shown that the formation of a poem, which in its individuality is irreducible to another poem, the formation of a painting or the formation of a statue never involves a monistic or hylomorphic principle of individuation. But it does involve a process of differentiation that develops from a field of pre-individual tensions and constitutes the metastable horizon of the world of the work. Thus, the quest for the hylomorphic principle of individuation, be it atomistic, substantialistic, or dualistic, it led to the contradiction of seeking within the individual already formed in atoms or particularized according to the fixed terms of a form and of a matter raised into causes, what would precisely have to have had to explain the formation of the individual as such? This situation leads Simondon to pose the following questions. Can individuation be conceived as without principle since it is itself a pr process intrinsic to the formations of individuals which are never completed, never fixed, never stable, but always accomplishing in their evolution an individuation that structures them without these individuals fully eliminating the associated charge of pre-individuality that constitutes the horizon of the trans-individual being from which they stand out. Um, right, so there's a question in the chat from uh, from Angus. Um, so asking is, is the argument here um, uh, uh, begging the question. Um, so um, the um, the the argument against um, against the atomistic position. Uh, yes, I think it is that that the, the atomistic position is begging the question. So it, in order to explain individuation, it has recourse to um, atoms which are themselves already individual. Um, so it, it explains the individual in terms of something that is already individuated. Um, so it, it's uh, it's presupposing what it's supposed to prove. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, I think that's right. For those of us in, in Bergson, uh, you know, I'll try not to always, but it really does feel, I was joking in the Bergson chat that it feels like transduction is basically an expansion on the idea of intuition. But um, whereas Simondon's imagery, he's often focusing on things like this crystals, stuff like that. And I, I do see a lot of this, a lot of the Bergsonian preoccupation with, especially this idea of the re retaining the pre-individual state into the individuated being. It's similar to, in a different way, to Bergson's discussion of, of the past and the present and of, you know, of, of being not losing anything. Like there's no... Uh, memory for him is always preserved, right? So there's never a point at which, and I guess in the Simondonian terms, like information is lost. And what we experience is that loss or that void or that, I think Simondon calls them the extreme terms that don't have an initial relationship with each other. That is kind of, it's still a, pro it's a product of the individuating procedure and it's not an a priori state where things are just uh, not related. So I just, I think it's really interesting and it's really helpful for um, thinking through this stuff. Um, yeah. So the the other criticism that um, 
uh, that Simon Don makes in this passage, or that uh, Garelli is is um, invoking uh, in in this passage, is uh, the criticism of the hylomorphic schema, which again we'll see in more detail when we get to the introduction. Um, but the the general uh, criticism is that uh, the hylomorphic schema um, it it starts from form and matter, um, but it it doesn't give uh, an account of um, of the interaction of form and matter. Um, so he, he starts, he analyzes the example uh, later in the book of uh, the formation of a brick. Um, so it involves uh, taking clay and putting it into a, a mold and um, uh, uh, you know pressing it and, and so on. Um, um, and uh, um, so th those are the two half chains. There's a, a chain proceeding from the form uh, and the chain proceeding from the matter, uh, and then there's this obscure middle zone, uh, which the hylomorphic schema doesn't doesn't explain um, what the inter interaction between the two consists in, uh, and so Simon Don wants to instead start from that middle zone uh, rather than uh, leaving it obscure. And then we also have right towards the end of the of the, that long paragraph, we have. Um, um, uh, this is more the contribution of, of Garelli rather than of uh, Simon Dong, but um, applying the same notion of uh, the formation, uh, the formation of structure uh, through transductive processes to artistic creation. Um, um, so we we did see some discussion of artistic creation in the last part of the mode of existence of technical objects um, for those who were there. Um, but um, it wasn't developed in quite these terms uh, of the um, the formation of, of structure through transductive processes. Um, uh, but this is a, a sort of um, extension of uh, Simon Don's conceptual framework to to apply to artistic creation. All right, we can go on to the next um, paragraph or next couple paragraphs that someone else would like to read. Is this methodological consequences? Uh, yes, from there. Okay. Methodological consequences of this dispute. Such is the radical novelty of, of Gilbert Simondon's problematic, which will allow us to conceive in terms of transduction the processes of differentiations that are deployed starting from a metastable pre-individual system, wrought with tensions of which the individual is one of the phases of deployment. It's in this context that the notions of potential charge, oriented tensions, supersaturation, and phase shift borrowed from thermodynamics and the notion of resonance internal to systems intervene. According to this perspective, instead of reducing ontogenesis to the dimension restricted to and derived from the genesis of the individual, it is a question of conferring onto it the vaster characteristic of the becoming of being, that through which the being becomes insofar as it is qua being. The ontological dimension of the problem is reinforced in the care with which Simondon emphasizes the incompleteness, or sorry, the incompetence of the principle of identity and of the excluded middle formed in a perspective of substantialistic and identitarian logic of the individuated being in order to deal with the problematic of pre-individuated being. This is why Gilbert Simondon can declare unity which is characteristic of the individuated being and identity, which authorizes the usage of the principle of the excluded middle, do not apply to pre-individual being, 
which explains why the world cannot be recomposed after the fact with monads, even by adding other principles like sufficient reason in order to organize these monads into a universe. This reference to, to Leibniz, as well as references to the pre-Socratic philosophers into Plato and Aristotle, attest to the philosophical breadth of the debate that is irreducible to a strictly physicalist attitude. Not only does Gilbert Simondon justify the philosophical usage of notions borrowed from thermodynamics as a part of a paradigm shift, he deftly accounts for the historical methodological reasons that have boxed the ancients into alternative trenches established between being and becoming, movement and rest, substantial stability and chaotic instability. Yeah, I think we can uh, stop there to uh, to discuss. I think there's a lot of correspondence between the process philosophical project, which is um, in at least the Anglophone uh, incarnation, a kind of recapitulation of a kind of Leibnizian um, monad monadic process philosophy. Um, so I think there is probably a lot of possibility of a good productive dialogue between people engaged in like a more generalist project of process philosophy in Simondon's work. I pasted in chat uh, one, uh, the next sort of meaningful footnote that was on that section, footnote 12. Uh, the ancients only knew stability and instability, rest and movement, but they did not know metastability. It is therefore possible to define this metastable state of being which is quite different from stable equilibrium and rest, and which the ancients couldn't establish in the search for the principle of individuation because they lacked a clear physical paradigm that could clarify its utilization. Yeah, that's a, that's a quote from Simon Don from this book uh, in the introduction, uh, which we'll get to uh, eventually. Um, but um, that um, that's Simon Don's justification or, or, or basis for borrowing the notion of metastability from the physical sciences um, or, or his, his, um, his reasoning for why uh, uh, ancient, um, ancient philosophy did not, um, did not have this notion of metastability um, because it, it didn't appear in the uh, physical science of the ancients. Uh, so it, it has to be um, it, it has to be borrowed from contemporary physical science uh, and then taken to um, taken into philosophy. This next section feels helpful for starting to establish some unless anyone has some thoughts. Yeah, I think we can uh, go ahead to the next one. Um, Right, so sorry, we just ended at sufficient reason. Yeah. Uh, this reference uh, to, sorry. Sorry. No, yeah, we had done our However, three givens intervene in the comprehension of the metastable equilibrium with which thermodynamics has familiarized us and which Simondon introduces into his problematic in a very original way. First, we must consider the potential energy of a system. Second, we must consider the notion of order of magnitude and of different scales within the system. Third, we must consider the increase of entropy, which corresponds to the energetic degradation of the system and implies the resolutions, resolution of initial potentiality. Thus, the apprehension of individualizing forms is a correlate of the progressive degradation of potential energy. A so-called completed form, which is a stabilized energy, 
corresponds to the highest degree of negentropy. Um, should I continue or? Uh, yeah, I think maybe read the next uh, paragraph and then the quote. Okay. Uh, guided by this paradigm, which is borrowed from thermodynamics and not from the physics of fixed substance that ignores the problem of energy, as the concepts of classical philosophy confirm, particularly with the idea of res extensa, Simondon will attempt to think the order of a being's pre-individuality in terms of supersaturated potential charges within a metastable system, on the basis of which the degradation of energy sequential to a state of overtension of the system will produce processes of differentiations and individuations. Thus, it is by phase shifting that a metastable system charged with a supersaturated energetic potential individualizes, while also simultaneously spouting from its not yet individualized internal tensions, a profusion of individualizing forms, which afterwards are capable of being structured into further systems and reforming into new metastable equilibria. Consequently, according to Simondon's expression, every operation and every relation within an operation is an individuation that splits and phase shifts pre-individual being, all while correlating the extreme values and magnitude, which are initially without mediation. I'm just gonna read this paragraph because it's really short and I think it helps. Uh, this is a situation that confers onto relations a charge of being that exceeds and overflows the order of strictly logical knowledge and significations. And it allows us to avoid the dualism between the act of abstract intellectual knowledge and the inert objects on which the cognitive act bears. Right, that last paragraph was um, the point that I mentioned earlier, um, that uh, transduction is both an ontological and a logical process. Um, so it, it's uh, both something that uh, is a real process um, occurring in the world and, um, and also um, Part of the operation of knowledge of the world uh, so that it's both at the same time and uh, the, the the second point there in that same paragraph is the um, this uh, relativization I guess you could say of logical um, uh, knowledge um, so this this is what I earlier referred to as conceptual knowledge um, so that a knowledge that would proceed through concepts uh, and then concepts uh, in the proper sense or, or as, as Simon is using the term is uh, um, are, are correlated with already individuated beings. Um, so it, in order to have a, a grasp of transduction, we have to proceed through um, this knowledge, which is not conceptual in that uh, in that sense. Right. This reminds me of the the section in, on the mode of existence of technical objects where um, he makes a distinction that's kind of related to this um, between um, in, internal to knowledge. He distinguishes between speculative and, uh, I believe, operational knowledge. Um, and I think that this, this, re this relates to this kind of claim here about the um, the kind of uh, difference between the kind of formal knowledge placement and the kind of substrate, substrative nature of not of knowledge. I think that this kind of speaks to that kind of distinction. I guess I don't know. I, that's the only place I can kind of trace it to because he he does make epistemic claims in 
in that book, but there are kind of few and far between in that kind of direct way. So that, that was a very striking distinction that he made between the operational knowing and uh, speculative knowing. Right, I believe, um, I'm just trying to re remember um, that that distinction had to do with um, um, uh, the the knowledge that, um, or the, the form of, of knowledge that comes about through um, uh, technical um, processes or, or the technical mode of existence. Um, so you have a, a knowledge um, of the working of various, um, of various technical processes. Um, and then on the other hand, there's the knowledge which is um, sort of formalized out of the religious mode of existence. Um, um, and, uh, and science in the proper sense is uh, the conjunction of those two forms of knowledge for, for Simondon, um, uh, or two, two uh, procedures, I guess you can say. Yeah, I, I do. I do think that he he wants to kind of draw a connection, um, in 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 the kind of epistemic or meta epistemic domain to this kind of figure ground um, alternative to the the form substance hylomorphism of classical philosophy, um, and uh, I think that this is kind of his his attempt of doing that to kind of show that um, that the, there is this difference between the figure of the the knowing and the ground on which what is known is known which um oh didn't realize that you disconnected sorry 61 were you saying that there is or there isn't a difference there i missed that uh between the hylomorphic model and the figure ground relation or when you were saying about the the difference between knowing and the process. Um, well, I was thinking, I was just thinking that, um, that the, the figure, the figure ground relation is what he wants to, to bring attention to within the domain of epistemology when he kind of models the, the op operational knowledge versus speculative knowledge distinction on the kind of technical versus religious domain, um, which he associates very strongly with both the figure ground relation and the subject object distinction. Yeah, I would uh, I would highly encourage anyone who uh, um, wants to learn more about Simon Dolan's epistemology to read part three of On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects, uh, as well as the conclusion. Um, because he, uh, so that, that part of the book is um, a sort of philosophical anthropology um, where he gives a, a genetic account of various modes of existence, uh, modes of human being in the world um, and how they um, arise from each other. Uh, and, and it's sort of structured by the, um, the figure ground distinction um, and uh, which, which um, coincides with the distinction between the individuated beings and the pre-individual uh, from which they're individuated. Um, and uh, and yeah, so if you want to learn more about Simon Dolan's epistemology, um, go through that part of the book. I like here how the, the, the Garelli's use phase shifting and stuff, because this this is the beginning. We've, we've kind of been talking about all the critiques, but 
this is the beginning of Simone introducing how does Simone try to solve these problems and just the the shifting from uh like you know he talks about the idea of the Kleinemann and stuff like that earlier like there's a way in which the in the pre-individual state there's i think the phrase he uses there's like an incompatibility with itself and there's so there's already kind of like there's the problem of identity that doesn't exist for Simone in there and then phase shifting like there's the the, the the idea of potential energy existing within that uh incompatibility needing to be resolved through phase shifts feels like his it's, it's his attempt to solve this problem of of you know again it's the phase shifting is kind of continuous always happening um yeah i don't want to misspeak but basically just that we're finally getting some terms to talk about how does becoming how it's not how does becoming happen happen to being but what is the becoming of being and how well, how does it proceed i guess Yeah, so we saw um, a couple paragraphs ago the the um, the, the thesis that uh, pre-individual being is uh, is not characterized by unity or the law of excluded middle. Um, um, so he's going to define, uh, or he's going to, to claim that pre-individual being is uh, uh, superior to unity uh, in the sense that it uh, um, it contains. Um, uh, some sort of multiplicity within it. Uh, it's not um, homogenous. Uh, so the pre-individual uh, field is structured uh, by potentials of various kinds uh, out of which structures will arise in individuation. Um, uh, and then uh, it's it's through this phase shift is, is, uh, that the pre-individual being um, sort of separates out uh, into um, individuated components. Right, so I think we can go on to the next bit, um, starting, how is this pitfall avoided? I can go again. Uh, how is this pitfall avoided? First, by conferring a dimension of being onto the relations traditionally treated in strictly logical terms, as can be seen at work in the classical theories of deduction and induction. Second, by treating the operation of transduction in conjunction with that of individualizing form-taking, which manifests the passage from the pre-individual metastable field to individuations in formation. Let's examine the first point. The relations between the fields of extreme tensions of the metastable system, charged with potentiality, have the status of being, to the extent that their differential values between what can no longer be qualified by pre-existing terms are not yet individualized, but correspond to the dimensions and scales of tensions from which the resolving energy of the system emerges. According to this perspective, quote, relation does not spring forth between two terms that would already be individuals. Relation is an aspect of the internal resonance of a system of individuation. It belongs to a system state. This living being, which is both more and less than unity, conveys an interior problematic and can enter as an element into a problematic that is vaster than its own being. For the individual, Participation is the fact of being an element in a vaster individuation through the intermediary of the charge of pre-individual reality that the individual contains, i.e. due to the potentials that it harbors. Simondo's emphasis. So this is something that I think uh, Alyosha mentioned earlier. Um, the, the 
thesis that relation has the status of being. Um, so the relation, uh, so Simon Don will, will take this as a, as a definition of relation. So um, relation in the proper sense has um, the status of being. It's something that uh, it's not, um, there, there isn't a relation between two uh, previously, previously individuated beings or, or already individuated beings. Um, it's only um, in a, a system undergoing individuation that there is relation in this proper sense, um, which, which has the status of being. I think that the living being is both more and less than unity. It's a very telling line. Yeah, that's interesting because it's neither closed uh, or totally closed, or totally open in a sense. So th there has to be this um, closing at some point, but but uh, a living system is always semi-open, so to speak. So it's very selective in uh, in its um, affectability, so to speak, and its sensibility, what it can um, um, produce in, in relation to um chemical products um that are upholding its homeostasis but also in um attaching meaning to its surroundings what is meaningful to it and how it interacts with its surroundings and and by that the 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 umwelt the the surroundings are also uh, in a very inactivistic and um uh, um yeah and expanded uh, cognition um, state of mind um, uh, part of this system so to speak because uh, there there cannot be a, a, an organism without uh, any relations to its uh, surroundings i think to that there's there's kind of a um a double a double openness in the sense that the surroundings are both kind of exterior and interior in this formulation. And so it seems to be kind of opened in its like in informative, um, I guess the, the what, what would be um, the kind of cause, what would ca cause certain i don't actually i'm not sure what words to use yet <laughs> i feel like i need to read more of the text before i can explain this i don't want to give like a top-down formulation <laughs> but it seems like it's open both in like the the in in um, input side and the output side right it's like open-ended both um and both in an in inner sense and an external sense and these, this concept of like the the openness to the surroundings i think is like always a kind of double double openness in that regards. Um, unless you conceive of the inner and the outer as like a false problem, I suppose. He does talk about interiority and exteriority, and that comes up a bit more in the psychosocial. Um, so I don't think you're wrong, actually. And, and it really strikes me as very anti oedipus you know, because he starts to talk about the molar and molecular and the ways in which I guess in the Deleuzian language, you'd say that the one invests the other and it's already exists sort of like in in the molecular. Uh, it's not like the molar doesn't exist there. It exists as its limit or horizon or whatever. Um, mm. not, not that we should read all this through the lens of Deleuze, but I think that you can very clearly see where some of these ideas came from. Yeah, but um, there's this reciprocal nature between 
both and they're not uh, sharply distinguished from uh, each other. I guess that's more of the point. The, these are, are not um, st uh, strict uh, borders between the inside and the outside, but uh, the, the, the borders uh, are constantly shifting and the inside can become an outside um, and vice versa. Uh, depending on uh, how complex uh, a system becomes, if some um, systems are verging or um, diverging and becoming maybe two different systems, so to speak. And uh, um, also there's um, in, in systems theory this aspect that um, the, the surrounding of every system can also be uh, just be constituted um, by other systems or, or uh, be just other systems, so to speak. Um, so there, uh, there's this kind of overlapping, and the I guess the the concept of the milieu is very. And I don't, but I'm not quite sure if if Simonon is ever talking about the milieu. It's more like a term that uh, Kongiem is using. I know that uh, Simonon uh, does uh, use milieu in um, in the in the technical um, the milieu of the technical object. Um, and it's evolution. Oh, okay, thank you. But it doesn't. Um, it doesn't come up as much as I'd like it to. To be, I, I think I'd have to look at Kinkle him. Yeah, the the notion of the milieu is um, uh, always, uh, even even when it's not um, sort of explicitly made uh, uh, reference to. Uh, I think it's always present in his discussion of vital individuation or the individuation of living beings. Um, um, so the individuation in general is always a, a partial process for Simon Don. There, there's always um, the, the pre-individual always remains. Uh, there's always something of the pre-individual even after the process of individuation. And it's through this um, remaining uh, pre-individual uh, that, um, that there's this relation uh, between um, a living being, for example, and their environment, the, the media. Um, and... Um, um, so yeah, so the, the, this relationship uh, in the living being, uh, it's, it's the, the pre-individual is both internal to the living being and also in its milieu. Uh, so it's, um, that's, that's why there's this sense of the, the double, um, uh, it's uh, uh, the double sense of, of openness that, that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I think we have time for one uh, more paragraph or, or a couple of paragraphs before we uh, wrap it up. According to the second point, transduction in strict solidarity with the discharge of the supersaturated potential energy of a metastable system will appear as a form taking and on this basis in the conjoined twofold topological and noetic sense as quote-unquote in formation. Since through the very movement in which a process of transduction, the correlated of the, of the discharge of pre-individual potential energy of a metastable system topologically informs quote-unquote a structure which is given to be witnessed and to be thought, we can see that it noetically informs about what it makes appear, and according to its associated pre-individual charge, 
i.e. the horizon of pre-individual being from which it detaches. This is why transduction, in contrast with induction and deduction, which, which do not have the status of being but are strictly logical relations exterior to the pre-existing terms that they link up, manifest as never exterior to the terms that it brings forth according to a twofold dimension of thought and of being, as an individualizing movement of knowledge, but also a movement of being, transduction is a form taking is for, is a form taking in conjunction with the energy discharge of the metastable system that is revealed as being more than unity and more than identity. On this basis, transduction is therefore not merely the reasoning of the mind. It is also intuition, because it is that through which a structure appears in a domain of a problematic as providing the resolution to the problem posed. But contrary to deduction, transduction does not go elsewhere to seek a principle to resolve the problem of a domain. It extracts the resolving structure from the very tensions of the domain just as a supersaturated solution crystallizes due to its own potentials and according to the chemical nature that it holds, not with the contribution of some foreign form. It is in this sense that transduction is a discovery of dimensions whose system makes those of each of the terms communicate such that the complete reality of each of the terms of the domain can become organized into new discovered structures without loss or reduction. Triad, I'm not wrong this time. This is absolutely connected to birth. <laughs> it feels like an expansion of the idea, like whereas, you know, Bergson was accused of a kind of spiritualism and a vagueness for like, oh, what does intuition really mean? Is this just some kind of like supernatural sense and he i think he does a good job of defining it as his own distinct kind of metaphysics and whatnot but ironically it's as a, it's as though simondon is right in that for bergson's time and for all his brilliance that he lacked a kind of paradigm shift that could have inspired the kind of language that simondon is now using to talk about what does the what does the actual procedure of intuition look like well it, it is about like entering in a Bergsonian language, you would probably say entering into the duration of the thing, of actually trying to perceive its, you know, the, the way that the structures uh, resolve themselves rather than trying to come with a priori concepts and immobilize them, switching back to a Bergsonian vocabulary. So it just feels, yeah, Lou gets distracted, yeah. But yeah, it just feels very much like um, it's a very potent and a really, really vibrant way of expanding on a problem that was kind of always I, I love my Bergson but it feels like it's never really expand, solved or really discussed in a satisfying way at least so far in what I've read so this feels yeah and, and the fact that it's something that is both within duration you could say so it's not just a conscious process it's, it's an epistemological philosophical exercise yes but it's able to do, you're able to do it because you're partaking of sort of like the nature of things, of their inherent flow, 
trying to enter into that transductive relationship yourself, which is why it's not simply a form of knowledge, I guess. I think uh, um, one thing that I think is in, uh, a good a good way to at least kind of model conceptually, um, tentatively, a distinction between Bergson and Simone Den is to think about like the the kind of phasal structure that Simone Den introduces in relation to Bergsonian duration as a kind of um, uh, inter a movement from duration centered centeredness to frequency centeredness, the frequency being the kind of like ergodicization or um, of the duration uh, notion, the kind of idea that we can like through its like repeatability and its synchronic kind of overlapping with other frequencies, we can kind of differentiate. Oh, sorry, ergot. Er I mean by ergoticism, a kind of um, I guess it's from it's from the kind of like work path idea, but it's used in kind of statistics a lot. And I'm kind of trying to use it in a double meaning in a sense. So it's kind of taking taking the duration to task, right? To, to kind of say like, well, where where are the points of um, um, at one end and the other and connecting them? And then you have this kind of phasal structure in a sense. But I'm not I'm not super familiar with Bergson. I read his metaphysics, but I kind of zoned out most of the time while I was reading it. I remember a lot that it had to do with circles. <laughs> yeah, so um, we have here in this in this paragraph again, uh, um, coming back to this notion of transduction as both uh, an operation, an ontological process, and um, uh, a logical process or a process of thought. Um, and he's going to say in the introduction uh, of the book, he, he says that uh, knowledge of transduction is a, a transduction in knowledge. So our knowledge undergoes a process of individuation itself. And that's how we have knowledge of the process of individuation. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it, it has both, it plays both roles at the same time. Uh, sim similar to to Hegel's uh, phenomenological arguments, like it both it both applies to epist epistemology and to metaphysics, right? It's that and that and that line of explanatory interest where where both apply to. I think I think any any real significantly interesting arguments have have implications for both, right? I don't know. That's probably just my perspective. Yeah, I think we're just about at time uh, now. It's about it's been about two hours. Um, we started around seven after roughly, um, so we don't want to go beyond that because we can only put two hours up on YouTube. I think, um, which is where we're we're putting our recordings. Um, so we can end here for today, um, and then we'll pick up. I think we should be able to, yeah, we should be able to finish the forward and then start the introduction next time. Um, so uh, thank you everyone for, for coming and for your contributions. Um, and if you have other questions or comments, you can put them in the follow-up questions um, uh, channel um, or ongoing discussion or, um, um, and then we'll, we'll bring them up next time as well.